there's a story about the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. I don't know if you know the story, but the people are like, let's build a really tall tower. And then they want to make a name great for themselves. And so they build this super tall tower. And then God and the angels look down and are like, well, this is a hot mess. Um, and so the question is sort of like, well, why is it a hot mess? Like, are, are they trying to just, is it a hot mess because they're trying to glorify themselves? Um, are tall towers bad, right? Like, what is the problem? And so the rabbis had um, a discussion. What, what was it that made God so mad um, when God saw this happening? And they came up with a, a story. And this is a you know, sort of rabbinic folklore story. And they said that when, they, when God and the angels looked down at the Tower of Babel and they saw the people building, that they were in an area, and if you know the general location of the story, but there's not a lot of rock around. So they're kind of in like a desert area. So the only way that they could get make bricks was with like this big brick-making process, right? You can just hewn out some rocks. And because the process took so long, these mud bricks in the desert, that whenever they would bring a brick up to the top to make the tower taller, um, if that brick fell in their trying to place it at the top, they would weep. They just were so brokenhearted over the loss of that brick because it took so long to make the brick and to bring it all the way to the top. And they'd be like, oh man, we lost another brick. But when a person, a laborer, was climbing up to do that, if they fell to their deaths, there were no tears. And the rabbi said, God looked down and saw that the people cared more about the building of this tower. And they cared more about a very a single brick than they did about the life of another human being. And the story's been ringing in my head all week because I just wonder at what point are we going to recognize that we have really bowed at the foot of an idol that says, I get to keep and bear what I want, regardless of whether or not that costs the lives of innocents all around our nation every day. And I'm just hopeful that at some point we will realize that um, we are called to preserve life and to protect it and to guard it, um, not, um, not to kill. Okay, in light of all that, I would like to preach the stinking heck out of this next passage. Are you ready? So we're going to talk about John chapter 4 and the Samaritan woman. And I just want to let you know right now that of a variety of sources and having been to Samaria and to this particular location, everything else, there are two books out that if you want to dig further into this, um, and I'm going to borrow heavily from throughout the message today. One is by Karen Reeder, The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Hashtag Church 2. Incredible book. Fantastic. It was just published in April. Very much worth your time. Um, and then um, Eli Lazorkin Eisenberg um, has written a book. He's actually written a commentary on the Gospel of John, which is fantastic. And in that section, there's a, a section called The Samaritan Woman Reconsidered, and he raises a lot of these points too. But today, we'll just start by jumping right into John chapter 4. And this is a long story, and I can't break it up. Sorry, she deserves all the words. So we're going to hang out, and we're going to listen to the story together. Um, and then we're going to kind of unpack it and revisit it. Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. Just want to stop right there. The had to, by the way. John about 10 plus times in his gospels, like it was necessary. He had to do something. This, ha this phrase happens about 10 times. Why does he have to 
right? We have other stories in the gospels where they avoid Samaria at all costs. But here there's something of urgency right at the beginning of our story that John had to, had to go through Samaria, that Jesus had to go through Samaria, John says. So Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sichar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired out by his journey was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Um, This was true, by the way. Um, And so something about Jesus' dress helps her to know that he's a Jew. So he's probably wearing what is commanded in in Leviticus, in Numbers, which is that you are to wear tassels on the, garment, on the garments of your clothes. She looks at him. She sees that he's keeping these commandments, and she can identify him by however he's looking as a Jew. And it's true also that in early rabbinic literature, we have other instances where, like, don't touch anything from a Samaritan. Samaritans are unclean from birth. So this is what the gospel writer is making sure you know. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well with his and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? And then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And they left the city and they were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, surely no one has brought him something to eat. This is not the first or last time the disciples will be very confused about food. Um, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do not, do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest. But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. 
The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have not entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. All right, woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the wall. I wanted to say that if you've grown up in traditional um, evangelical or even non-evangelical Christianity, that it's likely that everything you've been taught about this story is wrong. Cool? All right. Because everything I have been taught about this story is wrong. And so maybe not everything, but a large portion. So let's first start. Um, In my home for many years, there are a few names that shall not be named. And Kevin knows what those names are. This, it's not Voldemort, but it's equivalent to. And I won't, for the sake of sisterly love, call out these modern... um, theologians, pastors, people who publish things about women. Um, I won't call them out by name, but you can fill in whatever blank you think is there. And those are the blanks where Kevin has known for a long time. These are the names that will get him kicked out of the room. Like these, these names shall not be mentioned. In part because I grew up raised by a woman who herself, my mother, um, born in the early 40s, kind of lived a lot of her young adult life through the 70s and, 60s and 70s and the, in the Bay Area. Um, and she was very aware of equal rights. So I don't know if she ever even taught me the word feminist, but I knew from an early day that I could do anything I wanted to do, that I did not have to change my name when I got married, um, that I was going to be treated unfairly because I was a woman, but that, that I was able to confront that and work on it at every single point in process. So when I became... I grew up in a church that also believed this. So when I decided I wanted to be a pastor and was met immediately with the conversation of, no, you can't because you don't have the right body parts to do that, um, I thought, that sounds insane. And immediately then went to my pastors who said, oh, yes, for sure, that is insane. And then they sort of explained Ephesus and the cult of Artemis and all these other things. So I had the privilege of growing up, being able to sniff out uh, let's say misogyny on an early, early days basis. And I'm very proud to let you know that my daughter is right there with me. Okay. So I'm really happy about that. However, if you were raised in a church that did not equip you to ask those questions, or if you were raised in a place or a society where you thought that the most important thing that was going to happen to you was that you would either get a wife one day who would serve you and make your life better, or that you would become a wife and a parent someday in order to make, fulfill the calling of God upon your life. If those were sort of the only things set up for you, um, I think in part, the way in which we teach the Bible and have understood the Bible and the way in which our societies function and often even our churches function, change how we read this. For example, most of the time when people sit and they've taught me this story, the first thing that they ever taught me about the story was And they zeroed in on this, how many times the woman had been married. That's what they're most concerned with. Anybody else? Okay. So they talk about her sin, even though it's never mentioned in the story. 
Now, the gospel writer of the book of John is very concerned with sin, and we'll talk about sin at lots of other places, but sin, repentance, forgiveness, those words don't happen in the story at all. It's never mentioned in the story. Jesus never admonishes her or tells her to change her ways. Now, at other times in the gospel of John, Jesus will do that, but not in this story. What's the very first thing we're all very worried about this woman is, wow, she has had a lot of husbands. And so, again, those theologians who, or let's not, let's not say, theologian might be too generous a word, um, pastor preachers who can be quoted by saying the most horrific things about this woman. And you can fill in the nasty blank. Words that I don't say in polite company about any human being have been filled in and the text never, ever, ever uses those words about her. She's never referred to as somebody who makes a living sleeping around in the text. She's never referred to as having been unfaithful to any of these men. She's never referred to as being promiscuous. And yet, isn't that true? Raise your hand. Every single time you've heard this talk about, like, this is a woman of ill repute, and isn't it so nice that Jesus had a conversation with her? Sin is the first lens in which we often view this woman. Why? A good Jesuit scholar from Berkeley, Sandra Schneider, says this in her book, Written That You May Believe. The treatment of the Samaritan woman in the history of interpretation is a textbook case of the trivialization, marginalization, and even sexual demonization of biblical women, which reflects and promotes the parallel treatment of real women in the church. Can I get an amen? Right? This is true. How we think about women, how we speak about women, how we understand women to be in this world the cost that women have to pay as a result of this mischaracterization that's common throughout our interpretation of biblical text is present and real. And I know that we can all sit here and talk about the over-sexualization of women, how that particularly lands heavy on women and girls of color, how women and particular women of color are targeted in our community as a result of this. I would like to encourage us to turn the gem of this text. I would like us to grab hold of this story and start to let it speak to us on its own terms rather than through this lens of sin and sexual purity. Okay? Ready? Christer Stendhal, who is this incredible Lutheran theologian, um, and fantastic uh, leader of Jewish-Christian dialogue after World War II and working very hard, he says this, our vision is often more abstracted by what we think we know than by our lack of knowledge. Isn't that so true? We think we know things about this woman because somebody once told us, but the text itself doesn't say it. We actually have large gaps of knowledge about this woman. This woman, we don't have any explanation as to why she's had the hard time in her life, but we filled in those gaps. And our vision of our biblical story and narrative here is more abstracted by what we think we know than what we don't know. How we decide to fill in the blanks says much more about us than about the woman. So let's start asking some questions about the task. First of all, where are they? They are in Samaria. They're in a town, whether it's Shechem, which is modern-day Nablus in, modern, in Palestine, 
or Sechar. They are between, right in between it. Jacob's well is where they say that they are, um, between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Now, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal are the places where as the Israelites entered into the land uh, with Joshua, um, that they had the renewal of the covenant. And Mount Gerizim is the place where you stand. And that's where you had the blessings. And the other Israelites stood on Mount Ebal and they shouted the curses and they renewed the covenant there. And in between at Shechem and near Sechar is Jacob's well. Now of interest, there's a city of refuge here. According to Joshua 21 in the hill country of Ephraim, they were given Shechem, which was going to be a city of refuge for one accused of murder. And this was when if you had done something wrong um, and you knew if you had not done something wrong, you were innocent of that charge, but somebody was charging you with responsibility for the death of somebody, you could go to the city and have refuge. I just think that's super fascinating. Maybe that's why the woman is there. Here's an ancient photo of what that well looked like. Um, and then as people come to the area and they want to remember the well, they kind of build up around it. And here's where it is today. It's in a Greek Orthodox church in Shechem. And it looks super fancy now. Okay, It did not look that way in Jesus' day. Nobody was hanging out there. Also, just to note, where are they? Joshua 24, verse 32 says that they buried the bones of Joseph when they come up out of Egypt, they wander in the land for some time and then for years, and then they enter into the land. They buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the piece of ground, which Jacob had brought, had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem for 100 pieces of money. And they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. So in this conversation that the woman is having with Jesus, Joseph's bones are a silent witness to the whole conversation there. Just to hold that in the back of your head for a little bit. Okay, so who are the Samaritans? What is this conversation that's happening between these two different people groups? In Jesus' day and before, actually, from about the 5th century BCE onward, um, there is a big divide between Judea, a specific geographical region um, south of Bethel, and then north is Samaria, this place in between. Now, when the Israelites were fully exiled from the land in 722 BCE under Sennacherib, the northern kingdom of Israel was sort of booted out, but not everybody left. And in 586 BCE, the southern kingdom was booted out and then permitted to return 70 years later. And when that happened, as people came back, things shifted. The Judeans believed that they were the rightful keepers of God's promises and that the place where God would put God's name was Jerusalem and that that's where they were lived. The Samaritans thought, no, we're the rightful keepers of God's promises. You all went to Babylon and while you were in Babylon, you changed your script a little bit and you grabbed some Aramaic and we have the real thing and we kind of stayed here the whole time. So there was a long-standing conflict between these two. In the 5th century BCE, in fact, Samaritans built a temple on Mount Gerizim to say, this is the place where we will worship God. But just before the time of Jesus and the Maccabean revolt, when John Hyrcanus became king, he was like, you know what? We can't have a temple in Samaria. That's not okay. So he destroyed their temple. Tell me about what you thought they think about the Judeans doing that. They didn't like that at all. So they have a long-standing conflict between these two communities. The Judeans thought the Samaritans were heretics, and the Samaritans thought the Judeans were heretics. 
So it's mutually agreed upon tension and hatred. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't times where people, for the sake of a common enemy, figured out how to get along, but there was a lot of conflict. The Samaritans did believe in one God, just like the Judeans, and they did believe in the one prophet, like Moses, just like the Judeans, and they did believe in one book, the Torah. Oh, wait a second. Their version of the book which said very explicitly in their Ten Commandments that Mount Gerizim was a place to worship God. And they don't believe in the whole of the Hebrew scriptures. They only believe in the first five books of Moses, their translation of it, including they also had a Greek translation of it during this time. Like so did the Judeans. They called it the Septuagint. And the Samaritans had a Greek translation of their text because Hellenization was real. And so it was called the Samariticon, okay? Because they only had the first five books, they reject then Jerusalem as the place of God's worship, and they don't have any interest in the Davidic line. Like, we don't really care about that at all. And they believe, again, that the one place of worship needs to be Mount Gerizim, Deuteronomy 27, 12, is where they get that. The Samaritans called themselves the sons of Israel. They called themselves the keepers and the guardians, which is Shomrim. They are to guard, to shamar. What? The old ways, the covenant, God's commands. That's what we know about Samaria. We know that there was conflict between the Galileans and the Samaritans and the Judeans. And in part, a lot of the conversation that this woman's going to have with Jesus is about how are we doing this differently? You guys, you Judeans do it this way. You Samaritans, we Samaritans do it this way. This type of conflict from the outside looking in might look like it's not that big a deal. Like you guys share much more in common than you know. But from within, it was a really huge deal. Here's what we don't know. As we remove sin and sex from our interpretive lens, as this woman has this dialogue with Jesus, we know that this is the longest dialogue Jesus has with another person in our gospel account. That's kind of interesting and fun, isn't it? We know that this woman holds her own with Jesus in this teacher-student exchange. This is a type, by the way, in rabbinic literature, to have a a rabbi and a student or disciple have this sort of dialogue, toe-to-toe exchange. This is one of those types. And we know she knows the text. She knows her text very well, and she knows her story. Like, isn't, are you saying you're greater than our father Jacob? She knows the story. She knows what's happening in this place, and she can hold her own with Jesus. We do know the time of day. Now, great sermons have been preached about this time of day. Anyone? Why do we care that it's noon when she goes to the well? What do people always told you? Right. It was awesome. Like, she's there because she can't go in the morning or the evening because the other people make fun of her. And that's how we know she's promiscuous and an adulteress or a prostitute or a WHORE or all the other things that people have decided to preach about her. Um, None of that is here. And we would just like to say that this has become really a molehill made into a mountain. Okay. Noon is not the worst time of day to be out in the sun. 3 p.m. is. Have you been out around 3 p.m.? That's hotter. We don't even, and by, by the way, Rachel came to her sh- with her sheep at about the same time in Genesis 29, 6 through 9. It says she's there in the broad middle of the day. Is everyone sitting here calling Rachel all of those words? No. We don't even know it's summer. It might not even be hot at all. 
It might have been cold and rainy all day, and this was the one break in the day. We don't know any of the things, but because people have picked up their lenses of sexual purity and, all, and sin and all these other things of how we just want to decide to view women in the Bible, we've decided we know a lot. Sometimes you just need water, right? Maybe she just ran out and had to go get some more. Maybe she was thirsty. I don't know, but it doesn't have to be a big deal. I think more importantly, particularly if you listen to Omer's message from a couple weeks ago, that this is in contrast to Nicodemus who came at night and a woman, a Samaritan woman who comes during the day. And if you'll remember in the conversation that Nicodemus and Jesus have, there's a lot of conversation about darkness and light. She's not going to have a conversation in the middle of the night where she's trying to sneak in or not to let anybody see this is broad daylight. Now, we know that they're at a well, and we know that they're at Jacob's well, and this would immediately also be a type in biblical literature that would call to mind a whole bunch of other things, all the other encounters at the well. Genesis 24 with Isaac and Rebekah, Genesis with the betrothal well, Isaac's matchmaker goes and finds Rebekah. Genesis 29 with 1 through 11 with Jacob and Rachel, also at a well. Exodus 2 with Moses and Zipporah, also at a well. And so the type already here is like, ooh, wells are really good places to meet the one you're supposed to be with for the rest of your life, right? That's the type right away. Now, we also know that when you're at a well, and this is the conversation that they have, that she says, he's like, can I have something to drink, right? And by the way, if you knew the person who was asking, you would ask me for a drink. She's like, you don't even have a bucket. What are you thinking? Oh, I have for you something greater. Maim chaim, living water. Now, this is a powerful symbol that will pull throughout our entire biblical text from Genesis through Revelation. And it will also hang out in beautiful ways in the Gospel of John. For those of you who haven't yet, go to Via Media and watch Kevin's video on hover. And he'll talk about waters and hovering over and God's presence out of those waters of chaos. This Maim Chaim, living water, water that God gives is the waters of creation. It's the waters that of chaos. It's, it's waters that bring life. It's waters in the Garden of Eden, and it's very much temple imagery. And you can read that. Take the Garden to Garden class when we offer it this next year, and you can read all of these pools of water. So as soon as he says, you would ask me for Maim Chaim, living water that flows from within, she's like, ah, I know what this is. And this is a different conversation than we're having about a well. Instead of the woman doing the woman's work of giving him water, Jesus disrupts the plot right away and offers her water. Immediately reframing the whole thing. Different than all of the other encounters at the well and has this incredibly like this shift where all of a sudden the bridegroom becomes the bride. So, So far, that's where we are. It's a bit of what we know. So let's ask the question, why so many husbands? I'm going to tell you, we don't know. The text doesn't say. But maybe here's some things that you haven't thought about before. First of all, did you know that mortality rates were fairly high in the first century period and after? Lots of people died. 60% of people didn't really make it even to age six. There was a high mortality rate. And because of that, we know that the Bible, the Torah itself, actually provides for what should happen to a woman when her husband dies. This is called the Leverite marriage, and we hear it in the story of Tamar and Judah. 
if you remember, Tamar was betrothed to Judah's sons and then one dies and another dies of their own doing. And so an ancient custom common in the Middle East by which a man's a man may be obliged to marry his brother's widow to produce an offspring for the deceased. This was so common that people wanting to trap Jesus in a theological discussion about the resurrection, Mark 12, actually bring this to him. Some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to Jesus and asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, the man shall marry the widow and raise up the children for his brother. And there were seven brothers, the first married and when he died, left no children. And the second married and the widow died, their widow and died, leaving no children. And the third, likewise, and none of the seven left children. Last of all, the woman herself died in the resurrection. When they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had married her. So we have another place in the text where a woman has had seven husbands in this story that is proposed by the Sadducees. And in no point in that story is it because she is a harlot. It's just like really bad luck. We have a story in apocryphal literature written in the second temple period from Tobit three, where Sarah, the daughter of Raguel was reproached by one of her father's female slaves for she had been married to seven husbands and the wicked demon Asmodeus had killed each of them before they had been with her as is customary for wives. And so she gets reamed by this person, this slave girl that apparently she's also been very unkind to. Overcome with emotion after being ridiculed, she wept and goes to her father's upper room and, and considers ending it all. She wants to take her own life, but then she's like, no, but that'll be so sad for my dad and it'll be really bad. And I don't want to bring his head down to, the, to sorrow and Hades in his old age. But it's better for me not to hang myself, but to beg the Lord that I may die so I will not have to listen to these reproaches for the rest of my life. So we have at least some indication that if this is the woman's story, she is heartbroken she might have some very difficult luck. We don't know what's happened to her. And that's actually the point. We don't know. We don't even know that the woman, that the man that she's with at that time isn't her husband, her, isn't her brother or an uncle, or maybe it's somebody that doesn't want to or can't do the business arrangement of the marriage. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But if she's a woman of ill repute, why does everyone listen to her? She's a real partner in conversation with Jesus. She asks questions of Jesus. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about if you want to follow Jesus, you are required to ask questions because Jesus is the person who asks the questions all the time and wants us to ask questions. She's insightful. She's aware of history, theology, and current events. And She's willing to set aside her own cultural and religious assumptions in order to have a conversation with this Judean man. And in that, she can even say, I see that you are a prophet. So she asks him a question. I see you are a prophet. We think we should worship on Mount Gerizim. You can see the ruins of the Samaritan temple up there. You think you should worship in Jerusalem, which is it? And Jesus says this. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvations from the Jews, or maybe it's Judeans. It's the same word in the Greek. If we think of both the Samaritans and the Judeans as Israelites. 
But the hour is coming and now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father seeks such as these to worship. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus in this conversation trusts her to understand that the third way is here. The choice is not between Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion. The choice is Jesus. And that the dwelling of God is in front of her. That the dwelling place of the Lord is right here. And this is what John's been telling us from the beginning. That the son has come to dwell amongst us, to tabernacle amongst us. And that that imagery of tabernacling, of the garden of tabernacling, of the temple, of the mount of God is gone in Jesus because Jesus is it. He is the Bethel, the house of God. Where Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending from heaven, which is what he referred to when he had the conversation with Nathaniel just a few chapters before. And this woman believes him. She says, I know Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking to you. I am he. Those I am statements that occur throughout the gospel of John to explain Jesus' identity. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, etc. I am the good shepherd. They also echo God's name. God's giving him God's self, God's name. In, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where he says to Moses, Moses like, who should I say send me? I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. I am. And this is the first of these statements in the gospel of John. This woman gets it. Like she gets it and she gets it. She gets to receive the first of these statements. And I don't know if you've ever heard this, but people often say things like, oh, Jesus never said he was the Messiah. Dude, he did. He said it to the Samaritan woman at the well and she believed it. I am. So this unnamed Samaritan woman is the first person in the gospel of John to be entrusted with the clearest messianic claim from Jesus. And she goes from identifying Jesus as a Jew to recognizing him as a prophet to realizing that he might just be the Messiah and her neighbors listen to her and she's the first apostle to the Samaritans. This is what the text says. It says, many more believed because of his word and they said to the woman this, these are the Samaritans in the town who came. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. They believed it because of what she said. But now we've heard for ourselves and we also know that this is truly the savior of the world. Jesus sees the fruit of his conversation with this woman in Samaria as proof that the harvest is ready and then stays for two more days. Jesus loves Samaritans. And the mission that God will send God's people on that we find in Acts 1, go then to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, has started with this woman. When we see the Holy Spirit fall in the gospel, in the book of Acts in chapter 8, where we see Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit, listen, y'all, that was not the first time Samaritans started following this movement of Jesus. It's here in the gospel of John right at the beginning. 
And this woman is in very good company in the gospel of John, isn't she? Because we had Mary, the mother of Jesus at Cana say, hey, it's time for you to turn some water into wine. We had Martha, we will have Martha at Lazarus's tomb say, I know you are the resurrection and the life. We will have Mary from Migdal, Miriam from Migdal at the tomb saying he is risen. And a company of women who speak the truth as witnesses to Jesus. She is in good company in this gospel. So I would like to suggest that the modern commentators on this story take a seat and take good note to pay attention to the end of the book of Revelation, right? In the beginning of the book of Revelation, it says, do not add to these words. We don't know her story, but I sure hope we stop slandering her. Let's at least listen to a very modern commentator on the text, Marie Dentier, a French-Swiss female commentator who wrote this beautiful commentary. She says, what woman was a greater preacher? By the way, 1495 to 1561, this is how modern she is. What woman was a greater preacher than the Samaritan woman who was not ashamed to preach Jesus and his word, confessing him openly before everyone as soon as she heard Jesus say that we must adore God in spirit and truth? You feel embarrassed, like if you have to meet her in heaven and you're like, I'm so sorry that in every generation we have to retell the story of this woman because we are so quick to try to see her as a sinner rather than as an apostle. What about this lovely woman, Margaret Fell, who was the founder of the Quaker movement in the 17th century? And she wrote this fantastic, you can read it online, Women Speaking, Justified, Proved, and Allowed of by the Scriptures. She wrote it in London in 1666. Again, how embarrassed are we that we are still having this conversation? This poor woman did all this good work in 1666. And she said very specifically, when Jesus was upon the earth, he manifested his love and his will and his mind, both to the woman of Samaria and Martha and Mary, her sister and several others. And she used this story of the Samaritan woman not to say, look at the sinner, look at the harlot, Look how Jesus is nice to them. She used the story to say, look at this woman, go and preach the good news. They're not alone, by the way. Christine de Pizan in the book of the City of Ladies, France, 1405. Argela von Grumbach to the University of Ingolstadt in Germany, 1523. She was one of the first reformers. Harriet Livermore, scriptural evidence in favor of female testimony in meetings for Christian worship from New Hampshire, 1824, Phoebe Palmer, The Promise of the Father in 1859, Elizabeth Baxter, The Woman of the Word in London, 1897. I am regularly wanting to just start an anonymous Twitter account with the best lines from these wonderful women of centuries before to at least try to prevent their work from going to the side and letting the voices that are more reflective of their own sin and misogyny and racism than what we see in the text. And I'd also like to suggest that if a woman comes rushing up to you with good news, you should listen to them. So let's remove sin and sex from our interpretive lens. Perhaps this text is telling us much more about race and identity and religion and gender and hope. And maybe it's telling us a lot more about Jesus. You guys ready for a cherry on the top? Okay. Now, we talked about how Joseph's bones are sitting there, right, as witness to this entire encounter. Do you remember what happened to Joseph? He's 
beloved by his father. He's sold into slavery and he goes into Egypt and he has untold suffering, right? Just horrible suffering. But why? What does he say? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And God uses Joseph's undeserved suffering to redeem God's people. Maybe this woman is like Joseph. Maybe her suffering, undeserved, not because of her own doing in this world, maybe God can use this suffering for good. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 49, it says that Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. Maybe this is the beautiful picture of the descendants of Joseph climbing over that wall of division between Samaritan and Judean. With bitterness, archers attacked him and they shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and womb. Genesis 49. What if this is the story of this woman? Our father Jacob, she said. Our father Jacob dug this well. She's part of this story. She is part of the fruitful line of Joseph. You know, at Spark, we say that our mission statement is inspiring people to live the way of Jesus. I'd like us to ask the question, what is the way of Jesus in this encounter? One of my other favorite abolitionists and suffragists, her name is Lucretia Mott, and I love her very much. Um, she was in, born in 1793 and ministered until 1880. She stood up in Philadelphia preaching a sermon against slavery, racism, sexual inequality, religious intolerance, and war. And she did it because of what she was seeing on the streets of Philadelphia, how she was seeing free-born blacks, or slaves who'd become free still being treated so badly by Christians in Philadelphia. And she stood up in front of them and she said, I am a worshiper after the way called heresy, a believer after the manner which many may deem infidel. I love this so much. How much time have we spent trying to prove to everybody that we still belong in the tribe? And Lucretia Mott stands up and is like, oh, is the tribe bent on misogyny and slavery, then I'm a heretic. I think the way of Jesus sometimes in our world might deem us by others as heretic. And we've joked for a long time here at Spark that we have a heresy fund. I don't know if you know this, but we try to live so frugally that we have a deep fund so that we can have the church, the leaders here, preach prophetically when it is required because if somebody leaves, that's okay. I want to follow after Lucretia Mott. If we centered, treated equally, listened and trusted the marginalized the way Jesus did, what might change in our world? When we talk about inspiring people to live the way of Jesus, this is what we're talking about. So like Jesus, may we listen to women. May we empower women. Like the Samaritan woman, may we be those who rush to tell others about Jesus. Because this way is amazing. 
And to end in the words of early rabbinic literature regarding the relationship between a rabbi and his disciples, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Sparkers, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi Jesus and drink in his living words as though you are very thirsty. Amen. We're now going to turn our hearts to the time of communion here when we share the table, when we are invited to the table by this Rabbi Jesus. For the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Spark, all are welcome at this table. Come and eat and drink.